You know, if, if you were a, a humanist, you would not see the necessity for Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Your basic philosophy would be this, that mankind is improving little by little by little. And the humanist would say this. He would say, all you have to do is look at history. How man left the darkness of those Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and moved into a period of Renaissance. And then with that unfolding, there came inventions. There came new scientific understanding. There came the discovery of new medicines. The industrial age took shape and began to produce goods that we would enjoy today and that mankind would be able to enjoy with greater and greater dimension. There would be developments in technology that would absolutely astound you Today, to, to give you an example, we, in our, our Sunday school class, we were talking about how the book of Job gives, gives us a lot of information about creation. In fact, it gives us more information about creation than the book of Genesis does. And in the book of Job, the Lord is speaking and he talks about the constellations that are in heaven. And I was, I was trying to describe how, and some of you might do this, you, you go out in the evening and you look up in the sky and you're able to identify some of the constellations. And the one that I always see is Orion. That, that's the easy one with Orion's belt and the four stars in the, the corners of that. And as I'm speaking about this, sitting in the class are people that have their iPads and their smartphones. And I see them doing this. And they're moving around and they're saying, with this technology, we can find where Orion would be in the sky right at this time of year where we dwell today. And some of you have probably done that with your, your smartphones and stuff like that. And it, it's really bad when the phone gets smarter than you are. And, and then you're able to look at these things and you say, isn't it getting better? And in this sense, our standard of living, to some extent, has improved. We've been able to experience realms of comfort that previous generations did not know. We're able to deal with disease in such a way that many things that previously would have taken individuals' lives no longer do that, but instead they become a little bit uh, routine. Uh, you can give an inoculation, you can perform a surgery. And, and so our environment seems to be improving. But something that becomes very evident very quickly is man is not improving. The heart of man is still wicked and sinful. The heart of man is in rebellion to the righteous standards of a holy God. The heart of man is violent and it's selfish. Some of you may subscribe to a little thing that I get online, which is Operation World. And what it does, uh, they will send you on a daily basis a different country for which to pray on that day. They give you a little bit of background on the country itself. They tell you about its population. They tell you about the makeup uh, religiously about the population. They will tell you the 
the area of the country. They will give you some information about its location. They'll locate it for you on a map. And the idea is that you would pray for that country on that specific day. And I find it to be very interesting because it does cause your mind to leave this very closed area that we seem to focus upon right around ourselves. And it helps us understand that God's intent was that the gospel be taken to the far reaches of the earth. And you begin to pray for countries, and in some cases, countries that I've never even heard of. And you pray. This past week, one of the countries that was featured was, and and actually they gave more of a a, a regional thing, Great Britain, which would include the Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, and so forth. But on this one day, they focused on England. And here is what the summary said about England. The sense that all is not well pervades the country. Broken Britain is the catchphrase of the tabloid news. The freedoms of the 1960s led to social disaster and hastened spiritual decline. Many are discouraged about the future and cynical about the seeming impotence of politicians to deal with the malaise. This trait is exacerbated by the media. Violent crime, alcohol and drug abuse, sexually transmitted diseases, immorality, prostitution, illegitimacy and and abortion rates, gambling addiction, and personal debt levels are not just alarmingly high, but in some cases are tacitly encouraged by misled government policies. Conservatives point to the breakdown of the family and traditional morality as primary causes. The simultaneous decline of Christian values in society over this same period is hardly a coincidence. Without a radical change, disaster looms. Why? Because man's heart doesn't change. Man's heart is what it is. It is sinful. It is selfish. It is rebellious. It is violent. It is everything that is contrary to the standards of a holy God. When we turn to the scriptures... We turn there because what we find there is hope. And the hope that we have is this. Can man's heart ever really change? The answer is yes, it can. But it's not going to be changed by science. Though the Bible is absolutely scientifically accurate. It's not going to be changed by new inventions. It's not going to be changed by advancement in medicine. It's not going to be changed by new discoveries technologically. It can only be changed by a radical invasion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul understood that very, very clearly. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are brought face to face with the only thing that will change man's heart. And it is the gospel of Christ. Would you turn once again with me, please, to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And I want you to look with me as we look together at these issues where the gospel, the good news, has the power to change people. And this is the only place 
where this kind of change can be found. When the gospel is embraced, it has the power to save. You say, that, that is such an elemental thing. But if you look back at these first opening verses of this chapter, it's so evident. Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and by which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here is what Paul begins to tell us. This saving power must first be proclaimed. When he began this passage, he said, Listen, I'm coming back to you. I'm reiterating the message that I gave to you when I visited with you the first time. And that first time I was with you, I proclaimed the gospel. It is a proclamation of what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death his burial, and his resurrection. And that which must be proclaimed must be those elements. Christ died for our sins. He did not come merely to be a babe in the manger who would later grow and live in absolute perfection, never violating any of God's standards, never committing an act of sin. And some people would stop at that point and they would say, Ah! The purpose for which Christ came was to give me an example by which I can live. And if I will evaluate myself in the light of what Christ did, and I will live with the desire and the purpose to so emulate his life, certainly God will accept me into his presence. And the Bible tells us that that's not a possibility. We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from our God. We don't have innately the capability to do what has to be done to be accepted by a holy, perfect God. But Jesus Christ, who was absolute perfection and was deity come in the flesh, could take in our place the sin that would condemn us for all eternity. And he could die in our place as our substitute. As the one who would take upon himself all of the punishment that your sin and mine requires because of a holy God. And the Bible tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It does not say that the primary purpose for which he came was to set us an example, though he did do that. It does not say that by trying to live up to standards the way Christ did perfectly, we would ever be able to find ourselves forgiven of our sin and granted eternal life. No, what it says is this, that Jesus Christ stood in our place, took our punishment upon himself, and died for our sins. There are those who doubt that the death of Jesus Christ was genuine. But those that lived in the day in which he lived have given ample testimony, not only through the scriptures, but in other realms as well. They have given us testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ died. There are those that hold to what is called a swoon theory, that Christ was merely unconscious when they took him from the cross. 
And when they laid him in this cool tomb, later he was able to rise up again, not from the dead, but from an unconscious state. Well, there would not have been a sacrifice for our sins if Christ merely swooned for this reason. The wages of sin is death. Did Jesus die for us? Absolutely. And his burial confirmed that he had died. So did the Roman soldier who pierced his side with a spear. So did those who brought his body down from the cross. Those who came to visit the tomb to bring the spices that they would place upon his to be deteriorating body, but it hadn't begun to deteriorate yet. But they were going to prepare him for that. They knew he was dead. When they arrived at the tomb, what they found was that his death had been overcome by his resurrection. And that's why Paul says, the very good news itself is all founded upon this reality. Christ died for our sins, He was buried and he rose again from the dead. The Bible leaves no question about it. As a matter of fact, the remainder of this 15th chapter is going to become so focused on that resurrection of Jesus Christ that it is going to be a a clarion call that reminds us that the resurrection of Christ is what makes the sacrifice that he offered evidently to us, completely accepted by the Father. So that what we know is that Jesus Christ, who died in our place, was buried, rose again from the dead, will provide for those who know Him as their Savior the same resurrection life that He Himself has experienced. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the Gospel. That's the good news, which I preach to you, which also you received. When we turn to the scriptures, we find that it is not merely a proclamation that needs to be made, but that proclamation must be received. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received. There is a responsibility that rests within the heart of man to respond to the message of the gospel. It was a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy, loving God that sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins so that there is hope of forgiveness and life. But the hope is nothing more than that unless it is received. You at Corinth, you have your problems. Did the people at Corinth have difficulties? My goodness, we've looked at all the problems that they've gone through in the earlier chapters of this book. And yet, here is the reality. That sacrifice that God the Father offered in the person of Jesus Christ, they accepted, they received, they embraced, and that was their responsibility. 
God took it upon Himself to to provide the Redeemer. Now man must respond to that in faith and must reach out and accept what Jesus Christ did and receive the benefits graciously that have been provided through the person of Christ. It's free. And yet it costs the Son His life. It's life-giving. When we embrace Christ as our Savior, we, we embrace the very source of eternal life that is the only hope that we have. Paul couldn't be any clearer. There has to be a proclamation of this truth. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that message must be received. And when it is genuinely received, something else happens. Look with me as we continue in those first two verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ must be evidenced. There must be clear evidence that there has been a change, a regeneration that has taken place within our lives. And you say, well, Pastor, why are, why are you emphasizing that? I'll tell you why. We live in a day that I am deeply concerned has brought about a change to the reality of the gospel. It has transformed the message of the gospel into something that is so easily accepted intellectually that there are times it does not make it beyond the intellect to the very heart and soul of an individual who must trust solely in the person of Christ, not in any religious activity, not in any religion itself, but in the sacrifice of a person for us. And there has to be evidence of that. If you are truly regenerated, your life changes. But here's what we have done. We have accepted certain little litmus tests that we believe are an essential part of the gospel, which are not part of the gospel. One is this. And by the way, unless you think I'm pointing a finger at somebody else, I'm guilty of this. But hopefully, won't be in the future. We ask people this. When did you get saved? And we are hopeful that a person can say, I can identify on this day, at this moment, I reached out and I accepted Christ as my Savior through faith. Now let me say this. I think that's a good thing. If there has been a point in your life that you had, I I guess for lack of a better term, we would say a crisis, where you came face to face with the reality of your lost condition 
and you realized that the only hope for forgiveness was to accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you. And you've come to that point and you have at that moment possibly fallen to your knees, possibly pulled off the side of the road, possibly sat at the kitchen table and your head bowed before God and you said, in the fullness of your understanding, I believe that Christ died for me and I am trusting Him as my Savior right now. And you can pinpoint that day. That's a good thing. But I'm also here to tell you this. You might have had a day in which there was a crisis, but you never really came full circle and accepted Christ as your Savior. And you're trusting in your ability to say, well, there was a day that I prayed the sinner's prayer. How many of you are familiar with the sinner's prayer? Okay, most of you. What, what the sinner's prayer is, is this. We will say to a person, if you really believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then if you mean this, and, and we all mean well when we say this, we, we all want this to be the reality of what is happening. We will say, repeat this after me, if you really mean it. Lord God in heaven, Lord God in heaven. And, and by the way, the sinner's prayer is not like stamped. It's, it's got some variety to it. So if this isn't the sinner's prayer that you are familiar with, don't worry about it. I believe that you are a holy God. And I believe that I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I believe He paid the price that my sin requires. And I believe that through His death and burial and resurrection, You will give me eternal life. And I now trust Jesus as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And then here's what we do. We extend a hand and we say, Welcome into the family of God. And that may be true. At that moment, that person may genuinely have trusted Christ as Savior. But I also want to tell you this. They may not have had any understanding of that more than than a rodent out on the road. We have come to believe that somehow praying this little prayer is what is required. There's no such thing in the Scriptures. We have come to believe that if a person responds to an altar call and comes to the front and they, they step out and the question is asked, how many of you would like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? And they raise their hand and you say, will you join me down here at the front where I can pray with you? Now let me say this, I believe many that have done that, many that have done that, have genuinely trusted Christ as Savior. But here's the rub, many who have done that haven't. Some of the most emotional responses that I have ever seen have been stillbirths. Do you know what I mean? I watched a man one time, uh, 
He was such a sinful man. He was just an enemy of the gospel. And he was bawling his eyes out. And he came down to the front. And as he is bowing there, he's calling out to Christ to be his Savior. And within the week, he was completely rejecting everything that he said he believed when he came forward in church. That's never the test. It makes us feel good. We, we love to see results, don't we? I, I would love to see people pray. But I want to tell you, in, in our former church, we would go out every week witnessing to people. And, and I had a literal 8.5 by 11 sheet with names of individuals who prayed, quote, the sinner's prayer and supposedly came to know Christ as their Savior. And then in our efforts to try to follow up with them, not one of them was interested in pursuing, developing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul never said, pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. He never said that you have to identify a place and a time. And I've heard this argument, and I've used this argument. Well, when you were born the first time, you knew the place, and you knew the time. And so we've got to be able to do that the second time. The new birth, being born again. But I don't see that. Some people will say, well, I got saved because I walked down to the front and I knelt there by the altar. And yes, I believe in Jesus. But in their mind, they believe in Jesus. But they haven't really been changed. You know what Paul says is the real test? Look, look. This is God's word, not man's devices. Verse 2, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Oh, there was a degree of belief, but it wasn't the real thing. What he is saying is this. Some people will look at that verse and they'll, they'll automatically say this. Well, if you hang on to Christ, that's how they interpret this. If you really meant this, if you really hang on to Christ until the end, then, then you'll be saved. But if you don't hang on to him, then you're going to lose your salvation. That is not what this verse is saying. This is a verse of evidence. The person who truly has accepted Christ as Savior will embrace the gospel as their only hope day after day after day after day. You want to know who's saved? Not the person who can give you a date and time. Not the person who has prayed the sinner's prayer. Not the person who has walked forward in a service. But the person who every day of his life recognizes that his only hope is found in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and he has embraced that hope as his hope for all eternity. That's it. So let's not be deceived. I know, people. can people backslide? We use the term backslide. Yeah, they can. The Lord has shown us people like that. David, I, I realize under the old dispensation, that is a little different situation, but it's still very much the same. Did David lose his salvation? No. He said, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Do we lose our salvation if we are genuinely born again? No! We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. We are held in the hand of Christ 
never to be plucked out, who is held in the hand of the Father. That's pretty secure. And there is a fundamental change that takes place within our lives when we genuinely trust Christ as Savior. So if you don't show any evidence that your life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do not know the Savior. But I'm a member of this church. You don't know the Savior. But I have done all sorts of wonderful things. You don't know the Savior. The test. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. When Paul writes to them the second time, in the 13th chapter, the second letter that he, he writes to these Corinthians, he says this in the fifth verse. He's coming to the end now. This is going to be the last message that he sends to them. And he gets down to the end. Now he's been talking to a church. He's been talking to the saints at Corinth. He's been talking to people who believe. But then listen to what he says. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified but I trust that you will know that you were not disqualified you know what the Lord is basically saying you better make sure that you know Christ is your Savior I've heard of people who say you know what once I've trusted Christ as Savior I can pretty well live the way I want I can commit adultery if I want no you can't no, you can't. I can lie. No, that's sin. Can you do it? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can do it. And can you commit an act that, that causes you to stumble and fall? Yes, but there will be a recovery. There will be a confession of that sin. There will be a forsaking of that sin. And there will be a drawing back into fellowship where you show day after day after day that you know Jesus Christ is Savior. I just wonder if people of Grace Baptist Church, or if there are people in Grace Baptist Church that have never really been saved. Never really trusted Christ as their Savior. But they're relying on a little prayer that they offered. One of the things that is really discouraging to me as a pastor is when I'm inter interviewing a young person who wants to be baptized. And you ask this young person about their understanding of what it is to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And right away, generally it's a mother... Generally, a mother will speak up and say, oh, oh yes, she accepted Christ. Uh, she prayed the sinner's prayer in our living room. Okay, so let me start over. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? What evidence would you give that you have been changed? Paul says, if there's no evidence, there's no life. Hey, folks. Just the messenger. You know what else the gospel will change? It will transform you. It'll take you from spiritual death into life. That's what we have been describing. People who are spiritually dead are born that way. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins has He made alive 
through Jesus Christ, we pass from the realm of death, which is a realm in which we are lost and condemned for all eternity. And that death is a spiritual death that is demonstrated in the lack of relationship we have with our Creator. Here's where people get confused. They think if you're nice to somebody else, or you're really a good neighbor, or you're somebody in a family where, boy, we can always count on so-and-so because they are, they are so willing to give of themselves and they're so willing to be nice. Those should be the characteristics of a truly born-again person, but they are not necessarily the characteristics that the person is born again. The death that we have within us is in relationship to the Father. It is not in relationship to one another. You can be the nicest person in the world and go to hell. You can be the kindest, most giving, most generous, most hospitable person in the world. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're lost. Paul says we pass from death into life. There is a new life that the Lord infuses within us and that is the life that's demonstrated through the way we live and Jesus Christ provides that life freely for both now and for eternity. It's not an issue of the Lord saying, well, I'm going to take you to heaven one day. No, he says, I'm going to give you eternal life. When does that begin? It begins the moment you genuinely believe that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. You pass from death into life, and now there is a means by which you can relate to your Creator. And you have the life that He gives in you that is demonstrated right now. A whole new quality of life. May I say this? Most of you are here today because you have a whole new quality of life. You would like to sleep in, wouldn't you? Come on. Would you? You did kind of. Okay. Now that's, that's an honest man. Uh, you, you'd like to sleep in, but you don't. Instead, you say, you know what? I need to do this. I need to be with God's people to worship the Lord today. God desires that. He doesn't desire that I go off into the woods with my rifle and sit there waiting for a deer and count this my worship. Especially if I get one. That isn't it. We worship together because we're a body of Christ. We have been given spiritual gifts by which we are to to edify one another and build up the body of Christ. And so what we have is we have a new life that causes us to live life differently. Today, some of you will go out to a restaurant to eat, and you're probably hoping that I'll let you do that very soon. And when you go out to the restaurant to eat, you will be given some change, and the, the lady, instead of giving you a five, has given you a ten. Now, you don't have to be saved to do this, but a saved person will do this. You gave me too much, and you give it back. It's little things like that. It's little things, and it's the big things. We get to go to heaven forever. And by the way, the lost go to hell, but not forever. You don't go to hell forever. You're cast into the lake of fire where you spend eternity. 
that's where you go. Where the smoke of their torment ascends forever. Oh, you're one of those old Bible-pounding, crazy old preachers. Yeah. Yeah, I believe what God says. It transforms from death into life. It transforms from sin into righteousness. Turn back in this same book to the sixth chapter. Sixth chapter. Verse 9. See, here's part of the evidence of really being saved. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. Past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a great thing happens when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior. You give up those old sinful ways and you begin living righteously. There's the evidence. Are you saved? Well, let's take a look at your life. Let's find out. Are you really saved? Well, yeah, I prayed that sinner's prayer. No. Have you moved from those sinful acts into acts of righteousness and the good works for which the Lord has saved you? We're transformed. We're transformed from hate to love. Paul understands this completely. Look down at that 15th chapter, the 9th verse, where it says this. Paul is speaking of himself and he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I put believers to death. I threw them into prison. But not anymore. Now I try to help them find Christ. Now I build the church. Now I communicate the gospel. That which is most important, I deliver unto you. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And you believed. And I love you for it. I used to hate you. I wanted you in jail. I wanted you punished. I wanted you tortured. I wanted you dead. Not anymore. Now you're the best people on the face of the planet. Oh yeah, you're strange. You have weirdness about you. 
yeah, there's, there's dysfunction in your family. I understand all that. We haven't been completely delivered from the very presence of sin yet, but we are delivered from the very bondage. That's the word. From the bondage of sin. And I love you. With all your imperfections, I want the very best for you. That's transformation. And then it transforms from fear to courage. These people that are referred to in the following verses, where it talks about all those who saw the resurrected Christ, it speaks about some of the apostles, it speaks about uh, the 500 brethren who saw him at one time, who are st- many of whom are still alive. They knew the truth. They knew that Christ rose from the dead. They knew it was not a sham. It was not a lie. His body was not stolen by the, the disciples. He did not swoon and come back to life. He, or, or pardon me, swoon and, and, and resuscitate. He was dead and was raised from the dead. And we've seen him and we know it. And we're willing to die for it if necessary. How about it? Sometimes people ask me, would you be willing to die for Christ? And I think I've told you this before. I hope so. I wish I could just stand in front of you and say, I am absolutely committed to even death for Christ. That's what it should be. What happens when somebody's actually holding a gun to your head? I would have to rely upon the grace of God. And I can't answer that question right now because I'm not confronted with it. But here's what I can answer. I'm committed to live for him. To live for him. That I can answer. Takes courage to live for the Savior. Courage in your neighborhood, courage in your family, courage in your workplace, courage in your school. By the way, Highlands Christian Academy. You guys understand, not everybody there is a believer. Take some guts to live for Christ. When you know that some of your classmates think you're some kind of weirdo because you don't have the same desires that they have to go out and get drunk, to smoke pot, even if it's legal, to sleep around, to just do whatever you want instead of what your parents tell you to do. Take some guts to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I know that Jesus Christ is everything he said he is and I've trusted him as my Savior and I'm willing to live for him. Will you die for him? I don't know. When the time comes, I'll have to rely upon his grace. But right now, here's what I do know. I can live for him. There's one final area, and I'll just mention this. The gospel has the power to sanctify, which means to make productive of spiritual blessings. He can sanctify our efforts. You know, the Apostle Paul had lived a pretty nasty life before he came to know Christ as his Savior. And I would imagine that bothered him. I would imagine there were nights that he would lie in bed 
or on the ground, and he would be thinking to himself, I held the coats of the people who picked up stones and killed my brother Stephen. And I went along with it. And that family, when I had the father put in prison and he died there, and the mother was taken away, and the children were given to others to raise who don't know the Lord, now he can say this I've been forgiven and what I was I'm not any longer and I can serve Christ the past can't change it but I can do what Christ wants me to do right now sanctified efforts he sanctifies our priorities. The issues of life that we live for are no longer the issues that we used to live for. They are now the things of eternal value. Those are primary. Do I have to go to work? Yes. Do I have to take care of my family? Yes. Do I have to earn a living? Yes. Do I have to obey my husband? Yes. You know, anytime you raise these questions, there's always those that are a little bit more sticky than others, but there's no question about it. These are the things that the Lord says. Just like he says, am I to love my wife? Yes. Yes. But now, I use my finances, I use my influence, I use my time, in such a way that there is eternal return. And then, he sanctifies our commitments. Um, do, you, do you all recognize the name Luther Burbank? Some of you won't, which is okay. I, I remember him from when I was younger. Uh, he died in 1926 or something like that. He was, I had to look this up online, he was a botanist. He was a uh, horticulturist. He was heavy into the sciences of living, growing things like plants. When he was uh, coming toward the end of his life, he, he made this statement. He said, when I die, I want to be buried under a redwood tree. Now here's what's gross. So that my strength can go into the life of that tree and there my strength will be. Oh, gross. I have no idea where he was buried. He's, I don't know. But sometimes we're a little bit like that. We say, I have been given new strength by the Lord but I'm going to use it for things that are going to pass away. I've been given strength to serve a God faithfully, not just for time, but for all eternity. So I'm going to use my strength for the things that die and that will one day be burned. 
Or do we say this? I want my strength to be used for the things that will count forever. When you're saved, when you're really, really saved, that's what you do. That's what you do. Some of you here today may need Christ. And I would be remiss not to give you that opportunity. But here's what I will tell you. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But I am going to ask you, in the quietness of your own heart, where you are right now, reach out to the Lord and express what you genuinely believe. If you believe that Christ died for your sins and that He was buried and He rose again the third day, that belief causes you to pass from death into life. If you feel it would be to your advantage to have a moment when you could say, I remember when I expressed that to the Lord, go ahead. He's listening. He's listening right now. You go ahead and tell Him so that you could say, on December the 9th, 2012, sitting in a pew, I put my trust in Christ and Him alone for my eternal life. And every day that followed, I wanted to live for the praise of His glory. I fell. I scunned my knees. I bumped my head. There were times that I failed. But I am still following the Savior because I believe the gospel that Christ died for my sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. Don't anybody leave here without trusting Christ. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege it is to handle your word, to open it together with others who believe, others whose minds have been enlightened by your Holy Spirit. But Father, we would pray for those who have never had the eyes of their understanding enlightened and they have never been brought to the place where they've been convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment by your Holy Spirit. And I would pray, Father, that right now, you, only you, who has the power to reach into hearts and change them, would do a work that would last in individuals' lives both through time and through eternity for the glory of Christ. Help us all to understand the power of the gospel and to live according to that power for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.